pretty well here. We're coming tonight to Romans 11, verses 25 uh, to 32. So that's going to be our focus tonight, verses 25 to 32. Uh, let me begin with a question. Do you enjoy mysteries? Do you like a good, a good mystery? Uh, are you a fan of games like Clue? Where you have to solve the puzzle and learn the truth of who committed the murder and in what room and with what weapon? Uh, do you enjoy mystery novels like uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories by Arthur Conan Doyle? Um, after Doyle came Agatha Christie and G.K. Chesterton and Dorothy Sayers uh, in what was known as the golden age of the mystery novels. Or maybe you like watching television shows built around the mystery of who committed the crime. Uh, I grew up watching shows like Matlock or Murder, She Wrote uh, and, and those old mystery shows. Uh, the examples uh, that I've just given there all seem to center around crime, right? Um, the mystery is usually a whodunit, right? Who committed the crime? But there are larger mysteries uh, and there are grander mysteries. Uh, there are mysteries that can, can stir the soul. Uh, the Apostle Paul loves talking about mystery. Uh, nearly 20 times in his letters does Paul speak of mystery. And the reason that he speaks of it so much is that he understood that he was living in a time, a very special time, in which cosmic mysteries were suddenly being revealed. When Paul speaks of mystery, he is speaking of something that was hidden in the past, but now with the coming of Jesus Christ, it's being unveiled. It's being revealed. It's being made known. There are glorious truths that were hinted at in the Old Testament, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, uh, given to the Jews in types and in shadows, and were largely hidden from the rest of the world. But now, in the first century, in Paul's day, those glorious truths were being set on a stand for everyone to see. It saddens me that in some circles of Christianity, uh, especially in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, uh, and in some American denominations, uh, they choose to remain in darkness uh, rather than celebrating light. That is, they, they love the idea of mystery, but they love the idea of mystery as something that is still hidden. Uh, they see remaining in darkness as being holier than being in truth. Uh, so, for example, among some people, it is considered a mark of holiness to speak of God in all His mystery as the God who is so transcendent that we can never really know Him. We can never really understand Him. And when we start talking about the attributes of God and God's nature and God's character, they start to get really uncomfortable. They point out, well, you know, our words can't do God's, God justice. You know, our feeble minds and our words can't really comprehend the God who is cosmically big. And they say, to even start talking like you know what you're talking about is to be presumptuous. They say a true mark of holiness is that you simply let God be mysterious, 
hidden away in darkness. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to God's ways with man or God's purposes, they prefer to stand in all of the mystery. But they don't like it when we make definitive statements. But friends, here's the reality. Our God of mystery has spoken to us. Uh, He has spoken to us in a way that we can understand. He has condescended himself to our level and has revealed mysteries to us. If I go to a group of toddlers and I start talking to them about some doctrine of the Christian faith and I start speaking on their level, okay, are they fully going to understand everything I'm saying? No. But can they count on the fact that at least what they can't understand at their level is true? Well, I hope so. God has not revealed to us everything. And it is true. There are mysteries in the Christian faith that are beyond our understanding. But that which he has condescended to speak to us at our level, we should be able to receive that and be thankful for that and celebrate that. God has torn back the veil on certain truths about himself and about salvation and about his ways and his purposes. And when God speaks to us, we're not to turn away and say, oh, I prefer the mystery. No, we're to receive the revelation. When Paul rejoices in mystery, he is rejoicing in mystery revealed. Paul rejoices in what was mystery, but has now been made known. So, for example, Paul calls the gospel a mystery in Ephesians 6. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, accomplished through his death on the cross. That was taught in types and in shadows in the Old Testament. It was hidden from millions of pagan peoples who walked the earth the days before Christ came. But now the gospel has been made known. The mystery of how God saves sinners has been revealed and it's been given to the church. And Jesus says, take it to everyone. What was once hidden is now revealed. Paul calls Gentile inclusion a mystery in Ephesians 3. The fact that salvation is open to anyone who will believe. That Gentiles, that's us, That Gentiles can be fellow heirs with Jews and partakers of the same promises that God gave to Abraham, belonging to the same Lord, that has now been made known to us. And it's good news, it's it's glorious news, and it was being revealed in all of its glory in Paul's day in the first century, and he celebrated, and that mystery being revealed, the Gentiles are included. Um, In Colossians, Paul calls Christ himself a mystery. The fact that God has a son and that this son would become a man and that this God-man would lay down his life and rise again, that, that has now been made known. Not only that, but that the fact that the son, through the Holy Spirit, comes to live in the hearts of people. Paul says, that's a mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is a mystery that it was was taught in types and shadows and prophecy in the Old Testament. But now, it's just said explicitly, it's made known. 
It's revealed. Friends, you and I do not live in the days of darkness. We live in the days of wonderful, sweet light. There is still plenty of mystery. Don't get me wrong. There are, there are many things that we do not know. And I imagine we will spend all of eternity in the new heavens and the new earth continuing to learn things and grasp things and explore new glories of God that we have no idea about as we sit in this room tonight. But we have way more light than Isaiah did or David did or certainly than Moses did or Abraham did. And we are to bask in the light that we have been given. For centuries, angels long to look into these things, and they've been revealed to us. And so that's what Paul has in mind when he talks about mystery. Why do I start that way? Well, because so far in Romans 11, Paul has been unpacking for us a mystery. And tonight... In verses 25 to 32, Paul states it more clearly than anywhere else in the passage. What Paul tells us in these verses tonight leads us directly into verses 33, 34, 35, 36, where Paul finds himself just crying out to God in worship, standing in all of his wisdom and his knowledge. Here is something that was hidden, that has now been made known, and once you know it, It causes you to stand in awe of God. And so that's what we're looking at. So look with me at verses 25 through 32. 25 to 32. This is the very word of God. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. I want to unpack this using four headings, okay? Four headings. Here we go. Number one, the danger. Number two, the solution. Number three, the evidence. And number four, the explanation. So the danger, the solution, the evidence, and the explanation. So here we go. First, the danger. We see it in verse 25. The danger is in verse 25. It's the same danger we've been talking about throughout this entire chapter, It's pride. Pride. Verse 25, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight. And all that Paul tells us in these verses is told to us in order to protect us from pride. And remember, he's speaking directly to us. 
as Gentile Christians. Uh, He had been speaking to the whole church in Rome, both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But beginning back in verse 13, he started addressing Gentile Christians in particular. Why? Because he had just taught a particular truth in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 of our chapter. He had just taught the truth that God has given ethnic Israel over to hardness of heart, to blind eyes, to deaf ears. God has given ethnic Israel over to unbelief as judgment because they stubbornly refused to accept Christ even when he walked among them. The Jews were the most gospel-privileged people on the planet, and when the Christ of the gospel came, they refused to receive him. And so God has put on them a curse, a hardening. And now Paul sees that this teaching could tempt some of the Gentile Christians in that church towards a kind of pride. This teaching could cause the Gentile Christians like you and me to be wise in our own eyes. After all, if Israel had the law and the prophets and the temple and even Jesus himself walking among them, and yet they still didn't believe, but we did. What does that say about us? We must be pretty smart. We must be pretty um, insightful. We must be wise. Look how smart and perceptive and wise we must be that though we were far off from these things, we came to believe, though the Jews who were right there did not. Also, since God used Israel's rejection of the gospel to spread it through the world and to bring it to us, that must show that we are much more favored by God than Israel. We must be better than the Jews because God used the Jews not believing to bring the gospel to us. He broke off those branches that we would be grafted in. Look how special we are. That's the danger. It's the danger of pride and of arrogance towards the Jews. The solution. Here's the solution to the danger of pride. Already in this chapter... Paul has been speaking strongly to us about pride and its danger. He's already given us some truth that should guard us against haughty hearts. But in these verses, his solution is this. Understanding a mystery. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. In other words, if you understand this mystery, it will protect you from being wise in your own sight. If you keep in mind and are aware of the truth that I am about to share, it will save you, Gentile Christians, from falling into pride and arrogance. Okay, then, Paul, what is the mystery? What is the truth hidden in the past, now revealed, that will protect us against pride? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Friends, the mystery is not that Israel is being hardened. Because Paul already said that in verses 7 and 8 and 9 and 10. 
And Jesus taught that, and it was preached in the book of Acts, and it was taught in the books of Deuteronomy and Isaiah. Uh, Israel has been given over to hardness of heart because of her rejection of God, because of her idol worship. We've seen that in the past, in the Old Testament. It's happening again in the first century. The fact that she is being hardened by God for rejecting the Son of God, that's not the mystery. The great mystery is that it's a partial hardening. In the Greek, the verse reads, a hardening in part, a hardening incomplete, a hardening not total is happening to Israel. The emphasis is on the fact that it's partial. God has not given the Jews completely over to judgment. Instead, just as in Elijah's day, God has kept a number of Jews for himself. As we've already seen, it is as the gospel goes to the Gentiles that God will then use the Gentiles to bring Jews to himself. There will be a holy jealousy in the heart of Jews as they see their Savior promised in their scriptures being received by other people. And that holy jealousy will move them to receive Christ. And the great mystery is that it's in this way that all Israel will be saved. That it is through the Gentiles believing that all Israel will be saved. That's what's being revealed for the first time that is meant to blow us away. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God's judgment on the Jews will be restrained some. The hardening will only be partial and all of the true Israel, all of elect Israel will be saved. Now, You can see Israel in verse 26 in two ways. Everybody look at verse 26. See that word Israel in two ways, okay? Calvin and others see Israel in verse 26 as being the church. In other words, as Gentile believers are saved, God is going to work through them to bring Jews to salvation, and in that way, all Israel, Gentile and Jew, the true Israel, will be saved. Others say, no, 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 Israel in verse 26 is just elect Jews. That through the salvation of the Gentiles, God is going to work through them to bring God's elect Jews to salvation. And in that way, all of the elect Jews will be saved. Either way, it doesn't really change what Paul was saying, does it? So that's not a debate we need to get into because it's just not that substantive at the end of the day. The point is the same. God is going to use the work of missions around the world to bring in the fullness of all his people, Gentile and every single chosen Jew. God has worked through ethnic Jews in a way that led to our salvation, and now God is working through Gentiles in a way to lead to their salvation. Do you see the wisdom of that? Do you see the beauty of that? We're saved here tonight because of what God did through Jews. And there are going to be many Jews in heaven who are saved because of what God did through Gentiles. How can a Jew boast over a Gentile or a Gentile boast over a Jew when God designed for his people to be saved like this? That's what was happening in the Roman church, right? Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, they were not treating each other appropriately. Appropriately. And Paul is basically saying your squabbles over ethnicity are silly. 
Because who can boast when God has designed salvation in such a way that through the Jews, Gentiles are saved, and through the Gentiles, Jews are saved? So at the end of the day, all the glory goes to who? To God. Okay, so we've seen the danger. Pride. We Gentile Christians, we must not be wise in our own sight. We see the solution. Understanding this mystery now revealed through the salvation of Jews, Gentiles. I mean, through Jews, Gentiles are going to be saved. Through the salvation of Gentiles, Jews are going to be saved. And in this way, the whole people of God are going to be brought in. What is the evidence? That's point three, the evidence. Is Paul just coming up with this off the top of his head? Where is he getting this from? Well, just as he has done throughout the book of Romans, and especially all the way through Romans 9, 10, and 11, he is continuing to root everything in his Bible, the Old Testament. So look at verses 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Now this, this is not one quotation. Uh, this is actually several quotations strung together from the Old Testament. Um, these lines come from Isaiah 59, 20, Isaiah 27, 9 in the middle, and then back to Isaiah 59, verse 21 at the end. It, it, would, like, it would be like when I'm preaching and I say, the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who do good, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. What have I just done? I've just grabbed quotes, all from Romans, but from different places of Romans, and I've put them together. Well, that's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's preaching to us. And he's grabbing familiar Old Testament texts, and he's putting them together to make a central point. So what are these quotes teaching us? Well, first we read that a deliverer will come from Zion. So that's Jesus, right? He's the deliverer, the savior, the redeemer who has come from God's people, Israel, Zion. So what's this deliverer going to do? He's going to banish ungodliness from Jacob. So that's how Paul knows that God is going to keep saving Jews. Because the promise says that when the savior comes, Jacob, another name for Israel, is going to be made clean. Sin is going to be removed. Ungodliness will be banished. So yes, the deliverer Jesus has come to save the world, but he's also come to save Jacob. He's also come to save the people of Israel. Verse 27, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, so when is this going to happen? When is a deliverer going to come? And he's not only going to save the world, but he's going to clean his own people, the people of Jacob. Well, it's not in the distant future. It's not in some last final generation of time when there will suddenly be a great revival among the Jews and the masses will come to Christ. No, the reference is to the covenant that Jesus makes with his people to take away their sins. And that covenant was established at the cross. This, this is the new covenant, the promise that all who believe on Jesus Christ will truly be saved and blessed by God forever. This is the covenant we celebrate every time we take the Lord's Supper. And that covenant has now come. And Paul knows it's come. 
And so he says, according to this verse, Jesus is taking away the sins of Jews right now. He's banishing ungodliness from Jacob right now. There are Jewish people. Yes, they're a minority. Yes, they're just a remnant. But Jewish people are being justified. Their sins forgiven. They're being sanctified. Their sins being defeated. And it's happening today by the Lord Jesus Christ. God is saving elect Jews. And Paul was one of them. There are several thousand of them in our own day, believing Jews. So, we've seen the danger, pride, the solution, understanding the mystery. We've seen the uh, evidence, these quotes from Isaiah. And now we have the explanation. This is verses 28 to 32. So, look at verse 28. He starts off verse 28 this way. As regards the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. In other words, the Jews are enemies of God, enemies of the gospel. They're persecuting Christians. In Paul's day, the Jews were running missionaries out of town. Why? For your sake, Gentiles. (laughs) Through the Jews being enemies of God and running missionaries out of town, the gospel's getting to you. And Gentiles are being saved. The Jews are enemies of the gospel, hardened to the gospel. They're hating the gospel, and God has a purpose in their hating the gospel, namely to get it to the Gentiles. It's for our sake as Gentiles that the Jews are enemies. Never was that truer than in the first century. Paul himself was a Jew who was mistreated and abused again and again by his angry kinsmen who hated the gospel he was preaching. And because they rejected him, he went to the Gentiles of each town, and they believed and were saved. So again, in the plan of God, Jews were hardened and became enemies of the gospel so that its message would then go to the Gentiles and we would be saved. But that's not the end of the story. See the rest of it beginning in verse 28. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are are irrevocable or irrevocable. Either way, it's fine. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Paul says, don't get the wrong idea. God still loves the Jews. And he remembers the promise that he made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's going to keep his promise. And there will be physical descendants of those men who will indeed know God's eternal blessings. The gifts of God are irrevocable. God doesn't change his mind on the promise he made to Abraham about his physical descendants. The blessings of God, his presence, a land flowing with milk and honey. These gifts are not now being withdrawn from the Jews. God will come through. For ethnic Jews on these promises. Notice he says the calling of God is irrevocable. When God calls a person to himself, he does not change his mind. And when God calls a nation to himself, a people to himself, 
and makes them his own, he doesn't change his mind. God has not utterly thrown off the Jewish people forever. No, the Jews still have a place in the plan of God. How? Through their salvation. They will experience the land flowing with milk and honey. And we're not talking about a strip of land on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. We're talking about heaven. That's where they're going to know the real promises that God made to their forefather Abraham. Not all Jews will be saved. Not even most ethnic Jews will be saved. But in every generation, God has a remnant. And He's saving that remnant. And as each generation passes, that number of ethnic Jews who are saved continues to grow. And yes, by the time the Lord Jesus comes back, they will number as many as the stars in the sky, to use a hyperbole. The, the, as many as the grains of sand on the seashore, as it was taught in, in Genesis. They will be a great number. And of course, they will just be a part of the elect. For the full kingdom, the full people of God, Jew and Gentile from every nation, will be massive. Look at what Paul says in verse 30. I just love how he sums this whole argument up. For just as you, as you were at one time disobedient to God, that's who we used to be, but now you have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So, so God is granting mercy. He's granting salvation to Jews now. Not some future awakening, not some future revival or in gathering of Jews on the last day, right before Christ comes back. No, right now in Paul's day, in, in our day, in all the days in between, God has been working through the salvation of Gentiles to bring about the salvation of the Jews. That's in verse 31. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. So we'll say it again. God has worked through ethnic Jews in a way that led to our salvation. And God is working through our salvation, the salvation of Gentiles, to lead to the salvation of ethnic Jews. Verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience. That is, we're all sinners. Jews are sinners, Gentiles are sinners, we've all sinned. Why? That through our sins, He's going to have mercy on all. The Gentiles, we were lost, we were pagan, we were unbelieving, and God has shown us mercy. Now also, the Jewish people, they're hardened. The Jewish people, they're rejecting Christ. But God is going to show mercy. And He is showing mercy. And He's saving some of them. Just as He has saved some of us. So, after many verses and many sermons, our original problem that started off this whole section of Romans has been finally solved. This whole section, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, began with Paul grieving because his fellow Jews were not believing on Jesus. And the original question was this, has the word of God failed? Has God failed to keep his promise? If God promised a day when Israel would be blessed, when he would write his word on their hearts and place his spirit in them and they would know security and peace forever and instead they're rejecting Jesus? 
Has God failed? Is God a liar? It's almost blasphemous to say. But that's what it looks like. When people are rejecting Jesus and refusing the gospel, when they're persecuting Paul, when they're kicking the missionaries out of town, what can we say about God's promise that the Jews would have the blessings of God? Well, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul has shown us that God's word has not failed at all. That God is keeping every single promise he made to Israel, and therefore you can trust him with every promise he's made to you. That's the issue here. You get that, right? If you couldn't trust what God said to Israel, if he broke his promise to Israel, can you trust his promise to you? So you've got to have confidence that he's keeping what he promised them if you're going to have confidence that he's going to keep what he promised you. So Paul gave us a threefold answer to the problem of unbelieving Jews. Number one, we're going to just run through it. This will be our summary of the whole section. Number one, not all who are descended from Israel is Israel. That's Romans 9. Paul showed us that true Israel is not those biologically descended from Abraham, that true Israel is those chosen graciously by God. It is those whom God has chosen and called to be his own, not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. These are the true Israel. Paul said God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he hardens. It is his gracious choice that makes someone a true Israelite. And every true Israelite will be saved. Second answer. Ethnic Israelites bear a responsibility for their lostness because they continue to try and use the law to establish their own righteousness and they continue to refuse to accept the righteousness God has provided for them in Christ. So how do we make sense of all of these Jews not believing on Jesus? Paul says, number one, you've got to understand election and who true Jews are. And he says, number two, you got to realize that all my fellow Jews, seems like all of them, they're all stumbling over grace. They're stumbling over faith alone. This is the end of Romans 9 and most of Romans 10. The way of salvation is faith, but the Jewish people wanted to, to work for their salvation. If Paul's first answer to the problem is God's sovereignty, his second answer to the problem is Israel's responsibility. And those don't contradict each other. Yes, God chooses who will come to salvation. And yes, the Jews remain lost because they will not turn from their self-righteousness and believe on Christ. And then finally, his third answer, the unbelief of ethnic Israel is part of God's plan to save Gentiles and through Gentiles to save the full number of ethnic Jews. And that's Romans 11. And that's what we've been seeing. In this way, no one will be able to boast in heaven about their ethnic heritage. I just don't think we're going to walk around the streets of the new heaven and the new earth and say, I'm an American. I just don't think you're going to say that there. And I don't think you're going to say, you know, anything else about ethnicity. You're going to say, I'm home. This is my home. And I'm a Christian saved by the grace of God. No one's going to say, look at me, I'm a Gentile. No one's going to say, look at me, I'm a Jew. Both peoples were disobedient. Both peoples were unbelieving. And God has shown mercy to both through each other. What is the takeaway? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. 
Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Does God need our advice when he can design this? Right? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. What is this all about? It's all about the glory of God. And so what we have left to do in Romans 11 is just to unpack these verses about how awesome God is. And I'm looking forward to the next two or three sermons where we're going to just unpack how wonderful. This will be mystery. <laughs> right? All we can do is do the best we can to say God is really, really great. But that's what we're going to do uh, as we finish out Romans 11. Okay, having finished with the meat of Paul's argument in Romans 9, 10, 11, does anybody have any questions or anything that, uh, that you want to ask about uh, regarding these chapters?